A river runs through it. I mean, that was a movie years ago, right? Some of you remember it? Any of you see that movie? It was, it was a sad movie. I remember Dee and I watched that movie, and at the conclusion, we usually jump up during the credits, but I just sat there. And I reflected for a few moments. We guys have a hard time getting in touch with our feelings, you know. And I said, Dee, that was a sad movie. And she had tears streaming down her face, and she knew it was a sad movie. Well, it was about a family up in rural Montana on the Blackfoot River, and he was a Presbyterian minister. And the, the river just ran through the lives of their family and the history of their family. In fact, when his sons, Norman and Paul, were young boys, he was teaching them how to fly fish using a metronome, just like a religious activity, you know. They had to get that down before they'd get into the river, and then through the years of their lives, they always related to the river. And Norman, the older son, he, he followed the disciplines, not only of fly fishing, but of his faith, and went on to become an attorney in Helena. But the younger brother, Paul, he followed the crowd, and it was the wrong crowd, and he wound up in jail, and then ultimately dead, beaten to death in an alley because of a gambling debt. Well, by the end of the movie, Norman, now his parents are gone, his brother's gone, he's back in the river fishing, and he's reflecting on their lives and how the river has run through their lives and, and touched them in such... Uh, deep ways. He's haunted by that, I guess you'd say. I thought about that movie this week because I'm going to be sharing a message, in fact, a series of messages that relate to rivers of living water that Jesus promised to those who believe in him. In fact, a river runs through all of scripture. When you think of it, Beginning in Genesis, there's the river that flows east out of Eden, out of the Garden of Eden. And you get to Revelation, there's a river flowing from the throne of God. And in between, there are rivers and there's waters, not just literal ones, there are many of those, but also many times referring to the presence and the power of God. And the way that we relate to the river of God and the rivers that Jesus is speaking about in John chapter 7 really determine the course of our lives. And so I want us to consider that. In fact, the invitation that Jesus gave here in John 7, and we'll come back to it later, is this. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What is that all about? Well, we're going to consider that, but before we do, I want us to think about the thirst that every one of us has and some of the ways in which we've attempted to fill or quench that thirst. There's an outline in your bulletin, and it begins this way. Jesus knew we have a thirst the world can never satisfy. Of course he knew that. He created us. In fact, you see that throughout Scripture. You see it throughout the ages, and you see it throughout our lives if you reflect on your own life. But in the Old Testament, there was a time when the northern kingdom was swept away 
because of their unbelief and rebellion. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, they had divided by that time. Uh, they were threatened by Babylon, and eventually God's judgment came, and they were taken into captivity, those that weren't killed and left for, in Jerusalem for slavery. When they asked the question, why did this happen to us? Why did God's judgment come? God spoke to them through his prophet Jeremiah, and this is what he said. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God wanted to be the fountain of life for Israel and provide what they needed, but they rejected him in favor of cisterns. Holes in the ground that are supposed to hold water. But these were broken cisterns. They could never hold the water that would satisfy them. These were idols that they gave themselves to in ways that wouldn't satisfy their souls. Jesus knew that. He knew the Hebrew scriptures and he knew about the history of Israel, of course. And he knew that thirst when he was in Samaria, outside the town of Sychar, when he encountered that woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he knew the thirst that she'd had as she'd gone from one husband to the next and then finally was living with a man that she wasn't married to. And she'd come out to that well and he told her that he'd give her water if she asked that uh, would be living water. She wouldn't need to come. Uh, for that kind of thirst again. She wondered, what is that water all about? In John chapter 4, it says, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Every one of us have has a deep longing, deep thirst for satisfaction, for fulfillment. And we may think that that's going to be satisfied through a relationship. We may think it's going to be because of uh, a possession that we've been looking for, or maybe a, a status that we want in our job, or maybe some achievement, whether academically or athletically, whatever it might be. And when we finally get that, we realize that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. How many athletes or maybe even celebrities in their honest moment have we heard say, I reached that pinnacle, and then I asked, is that all there is? And the answer is, no, that's not all there is. That's a broken cistern, and that can never really satisfy our thirst. What we don't realize is that the deep longings within us were put there by God, and they were to draw us to him, but we're always looking for substitutes. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And it's true. We were made for another world, and we were made for a relationship with the one who can take us to that world. Augustine put it this way in the 4th century. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. 
We're not going to find rest in the things of the world, in the victories that we thought would satisfy us. They'll empty, they'll be empty and hollow. And in the defeats and the failures that we all experience, we're not going to find rest in those either until our heart rests in the Lord. That's who we were created to have relationship with. Some of you have heard of Lawrence of Arabia. It's more than a movie, more than an old movie. There really was a British soldier by the name of Lawrence who had such amazing exploits in the Middle East back in the early 20th century that he was dubbed Lawrence of Arabia. And he led Arabs against Turks in the Ottoman Empire up to and through World War I. And then uh, he took a number of his Arab friends into Paris. They'd never been into a city like that. He wanted to show them the sights, and he did. So he took them to the Arc de Triomphe. He showed them Napoleon's tomb, the Louvre. They thought that was all pretty neat. But what they were impressed with was when they got to their hotel room. And he went into the bathroom, and he turned on the faucet. And he looked at that. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. And then the bathtub, same thing. And he said they just stood there turning on and off that water. The, the fact that you could turn a handle and water would just come out. Several days later, when they were checking out of the hotel room, they were in the bathroom. We wondered, what are they up to? He goes in there, and they had wrenches, and they were trying to take the faucets off. And they said, we don't have much water in Arabia. If we can get, take these faucets with us, we'll have water anytime we need it. Well, like the woman at the well, and like those Arabs in Paris, we often look to quench our thirst in ways and in places that will never do it. The world, world just can't do that. I'm hoping that each of us here today really has a thirst for God. And even if we do, we who thirst for God eventually discover that religious ritual leaves us parched. Religious ritual won't do it. And here's the thing. Many religious rituals were given to us by God. You see that in the Old Testament with all the rituals that they were given that related to the Jewish religion. Those were from God. And the rituals that we have that have come down through the ages in the Christian church, many of them were given to us by the Lord. But here's the problem. Rituals were never intended to become an end in and of themselves. They were to point us to God so that we would look to Him for our deepest needs. We make idols out of rituals. That happened even in Jesus' day. And when we come to John chapter 7, we see one of the feasts. There were seven feasts in Israel. And three of them took place back to back in the fall, in October. In fact, uh, our Jewish friends, if you have Jewish friends, they're in the midst of those feasts right now. Well, in John chapter 7, it says this. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. That's in the north of Palestine. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea down south because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. Now these were his biological brothers, his younger brothers, and they weren't believers at this point. They were skeptics. 
These words of theirs were dripping with sarcasm. They were saying, go ahead, Jesus, go up to the feast, and uh, everybody will believe in you up there. This feast of booths or tabernacles was, as I said, one of the, it was the third of three fall feasts. The first one was Rosh Hashanah. It was the Feast of Trumpets. They'd blow the trumpets, and it was about repentance, calling the nation to repent of their sins, followed by Yom Kippur, which was about redemption. And that's where the priest, the high priest in the temple, annually, one day, on that Day of Atonement, would go into the holiest of holy places and sprinkle sacrificial blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and asked that the sins of the nation be rolled back for another year. It's about redemption, that second one. And then from Yom Kippur, that second fe uh, feast, it would roll over into the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, same thing. And this one would last for seven days. They eventually added an eighth day on as a culmination day. But this feast reminded them of their ancestors' wilderness wanderings when they constructed tabernacles out in the wilderness. So they would gather branches and they would come to Jerusalem and they would make little tabernacles, little uh, booths uh, around the city and camp out in those for seven days. And there were a lot of uh, celebrations. It was a joyous occasion because it reminded them of God bringing them in, their ancestors, into this land of promise. And there were several rituals that were associated with that. Well, Jesus is urged to go up to Jerusalem. He told them, you can go anytime. Anytime is opportune for you, but my time has not yet come. And it says, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, he, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? See, the religious leaders were expecting Jesus to come. They thought that now is the time that he's going to make his move to establish an earthly kingdom, although that wasn't his intent. That's what they thought. And the crowds were whispering about him in the town, and uh, that he was the talk of the town. Verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. He'd done that previously, but he hadn't been in Jerusalem for 18 months. And intention had been building. The plots had been building against him. Now he comes openly into the temple about three, four days into that seven-day feast and began to teach publicly. The leaders were challenging him. And some were saying, where did he get his learning? He doesn't even have any formal education. And, and uh, they're harassing him. He responded to them by saying, you know, you, you claim to follow the laws of Moses. And yet you're attempting to kill me. I mean, that's uh, one of the laws that Moses gave. And they responded by saying, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Just wrote him off as paranoid. But actually, many were listening to his words and they were coming to believe. And that's still the way it is, by the way. Many read the words of Jesus. They hear the words of Jesus and 
just can't even understand them or believe them and others come to faith. Well, that was what was happening here. And because of that, the Jewish leaders got together and commissioned the temple guard, and these were some tough guys, to go out and arrest Jesus because they didn't want him leading the crowds astray as they saw it. We see in the end of the passage, by the way, they failed in that attempt. And when they came back to the religious leaders and they wondered why they hadn't arrested Jesus, they said, we never heard anybody talk the way he talks. Nobody ever spoke like this man. Well, the rituals that surrounded this were rich in symbolism. And I want to share a few of those with you because I think it gives us insight into what happened that day when Jesus gave that invitation about rivers of living water. Each day of the feast, a procession of priests would leave the Temple Mount and they would go down to the Pool of Siloam and one of those priests would take a, a golden pitcher and would dip it into the Pool of Siloam. Then they would all make a procession up the hill again. But as he was dipping the pitcher into the water and drawing it out, there was a choir surrounding that pool and they would chant from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. There was a picture of salvation in that water. They carried it back up the hill, and they were followed by the crowds who would have uh, two branches, one in each hand, one symbolizing the booths that their ancestors had lived in, another symbolizing uh, the harvest that was coming. They would come up to the Temple Mount, and the priest with the pitcher would ascend the steps of the altar and then he would pour that pitcher of water out on it and there was singing and dancing and and just joyful shouting while that took place. This happened each day for seven days and then on the seventh day it happened seven times. They'd go down, get that pitcher and bring it back up. It was a real ritual. And the thing is, I'm sure that... uh, For many, it was a ritual. Many understood that it pictured a couple of things in particular. They were reminded of how, when their ancestors were in the the wilderness, how Moses had brought water forth from the rock. The Apostle Paul would later say that rock was Christ. That was a picture of Christ providing for their thirst. But it was also a picture looking forward for these Jews in Jerusalem in Jesus' day because Zechariah and Ezekiel, those two prophets in particular, had spoken of the Messiah and when he came how rivers would flow from the temple. That's really important to remember that and we'll see that in just a moment. But the crowds were divided and confused about this and for some of them, no doubt, It was just an empty ritual. It didn't have a lot of meaning because it hadn't connected them to God. It was about religion. And I think most of you probably know that that's what religion can be all about. I mean, Buddhism, I mean, you can chant and chant endlessly, uh, as folks have told me, and there's no real satisfaction in that. Muslims can pray five times a day and make pilgrimages and do all kinds of religious activities and there's no real connection there either with the God who created them. Christians, 
Actually, so-called Christians can do all kinds of religious rituals. They can recite long prayers. They can uh, have readings. They can go to church regularly as a ritual. They can even take communion every Sunday and make it a real religious practice. And it can be empty if it's not connecting us to the one who gave us those rituals. We can go through the motions of religion and remain dry and parched. So the world isn't going to satisfy our thirst. Religion won't either, and ritual. But we who thirst for God learn as we come to Jesus that he not only quenches our thirst, but flows through us to refresh others as well. That's what Jesus will do if we come to him to get our thirst quenched. In verse 37, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood out and cried, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now I'd mentioned that on the seventh day they did it seven times. Scholars tell us that most probably... It was at the seventh pouring of that pitcher when Jesus, standing by the altar, gave this invitation. If anybody's thirsty, let them come to me. And if you believe in me, rivers of living water will flow from your innermost being. Can you imagine the scene? That would have been a little disruptive. The religious leaders would have been scandalized by that. But those who were coming to faith may have had a revelation. I mean... They had heard from the prophets that one day the Messiah would come and rivers would flow from the temple. What they would later come to understand more fully is that Jesus tabernacled among us, John said. He was the temple of God. He housed the presence of God. And he was the one offering living water to anyone who'd come to him and believe. They didn't understand and some were confused and some said, as you read on in this passage, this must be the prophet. Well, they were talking about the one that Moses had said would come. Others said, no, this has got to be the Messiah, the Christ. Still others said, that can't be. Because this man's from Galilee, and isn't the Messiah to come from Bethlehem and to be a descendant of David? They didn't know about Jesus' history. And uh, there was confusion and division. They soon, some of them, would understand. John, the apostle who wrote this, adds a note of explanation in the next verse. And it's very instructive for us. Here's what he says in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, these rivers of living water, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We look back and we can see that historically. There was a sequence, right? I mean, Jesus in his day was still functioning under the old covenant. New covenant didn't go into effect until his death. But under the old covenant, the only people that were moved by the spirit were prophets, priests, and kings. And that spirit would rest upon them. Spirit hadn't been given yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
And what would have to take place before he was glorified is that he'd have to be crucified for the sins of all who would believe, buried, rise again, spend 40 days with his disciples, instructing them, giving them a mission to go to the world, telling them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Spirit that would come, and they did. And 10 days after he ascended into his glory that he'd had for all of eternity, then the Spirit was given as it fell on those believers in that upper room on the day of Pentecost, another Jewish feast. And then they preached the gospel, and everybody who believed and received Christ and followed him were then given that Spirit. And so John is explaining it hadn't happened yet, because he'd not been glorified as of yet, but he has been now. And by the way, there were many Old Testament prophecies and references to this coming of the Spirit that related to water. I'll just share one with you. Isaiah, 700 years earlier, had said this, God speaking through him, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. He's not talking about literal ground here, literal land. He's talking about a thirsty people, thirsty souls, that he'd bring his spirit into our souls and quench the thirst. Now we can see that looking back, but I think the thing that we need to understand today is you can live by a river and not really benefit from it. I mean, this can be true when you're a farmer. Last summer, Dee and I were back in Nebraska, and uh, we were talking to my dad, who's getting older now, and he was reminiscing on his childhood. And back in the 1930s, when a flood came through southern Nebraska, through a river valley, and just destroyed all kinds of uh, well, tens of thousands of head of livestock. There were people that lost their lives. Even a relative, he said, had lost her life. Dee Googled it right there and there, told the whole story. But the interesting thing was, he said, it was the Dust Bowl. It was uh, depression. And they were trying to raise crops, but they were all burning up. And there was a river right there. And then when finally it rained in eastern Colorado and western Nebraska, and without warning, the flood came through and just wiped everything out. So there was the river, but it was destructive or ineffectual in helping them. And I thought, well, that's the way the presence of the Lord can be to us. If we're just distracted by the things of this world, or caught up in religious rituals, and not really connected relationally to the presence and power of God. It can either just kind of blow us away and we don't understand it or we're parched and dry but Jesus said well in fact take another look at what he said there's two criteria for having those rivers of living water he said if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture has said from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water two criteria a thirst for God, and a belief in His Son, Jesus. This belief in the Son, that means understanding who Jesus is, what He said, and what He did. A lot of people struggle with that. 
They'll say, I, I believe in God. I'm just not sure about Jesus. Jesus said something in this very chapter that spoke to the people of his day and to each of us if we struggle with Jesus' words. Listen to what he said. If anyone is willing to do his will, God's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. So if you want to know about Jesus, whether his words are true, you have to ask yourself, do I really want to do God's will or am I focused on my own agenda? Because if I really want to do God's will, Jesus said I'll know whether his words are true or not. And we'll conclude they are true. Secondly, that thirst for God. We have to have a real desire to know God and to have that relationship with him, Jesus said. Not just to believe in Jesus, but to have that thirst for God. Have you ever been really thirsty? I heard about a little four-year-old kid who had been put to bed and his dad was tired and little Johnny was asking for a glass of water. Dad, bring, bring me a glass of water. About the third time, his father said, Johnny, go to sleep. If you ask me for water one more time, I'm going to come in there and spank you. So there was just silence. Pretty soon his little voice came from the room and said, Daddy, when you come in to spank me, would you bring me a glass of water? <laughs> this kid was thirsty, right? He was willing to accept the consequences. I heard another story, and this one's a true story, about a fellow named Joey Mora. He was a sailor in the United States Navy, and he was on an aircraft carrier in the Iranian uh, Sea back in 1996 when he was swept off the deck. But his absence wasn't noticed for 36 hours. And when they realized he wasn't there, they conducted a, a search for him, and that lasted for 24 hours. And then they discontinued it because nobody could survive in that sea for 60 hours. So they notified his parents that he was missing and presumed dead. After 72 hours, four Pakistani fishermen found him floating with a self-devised uh, flotation device made from his trousers. And um, I made you thirsty, Ron, didn't I? <laughs> and uh, he had made a flotation device from his trousers, and uh, they pulled him aboard. His tongue was cracked, his throat was parched, but he was alive. Two years later, he was interviewed by Stone Phillips of NBC, and uh, he talked about that experience, and he said it was God that just gave him the desire to go on, and he sensed the presence of God so powerfully, but he said, one thought kept pounding in my brain, and it was water, water. He's surrounded by water, and he can't drink, and he knows that'll kill him, but he's focused on water. Well, we're surrounded by all kinds of water that won't satisfy our thirst. It'll ultimately destroy us. But there's one who can give us water that will not only quench our thirst, but refresh and bring life, life to those around us if we have that spirit. Now, here's the thing. If we thirst for God, and if we believe in Jesus, and we come to him initially, we get the spirit. And that spirit will stay within us. But as you and I know, if you're a follower of Jesus, we don't always have the fullness of the Spirit. We need to be filled again and again. And so we need not only to come to Him initially believing that He'll give us the Spirit, we need to come continually, even daily, 
and sometimes throughout the day, looking to him to just fill us with his spirit so that in this conversation, in, in this act of service, in our work, whatever we do, we can do it with joy and peace and not worry, trusting the Lord. And God can use that not only in our lives, he'll use that to touch the lives of people around us. Rivers of living water will flow from us as we thirst for him, believing in Jesus. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for the promise that you've given to us. Thank you for your presence that dwells within us. Help us to avail ourselves of the fullness of your spirit day by day as we come to you. And I would pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who hasn't yet received this wonderful gift of your presence, that today would be the day that she or he would say, yes, Jesus, I believe. And I thirst for you, God, for a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that she or he would say yes and invite you to come into her life, his life today. I pray that all of us We'll look to you continually for this filling, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.